always the Lord's Supper looks towards the return of Jesus. I mean, that's just kind of how it's laid out. He goes in, he, he uh, brings it in, he says, I'll not celebrate this again until I come again for you. And so it's always looking forward, eagerly, expectantly, awaiting Christ's return. And so I, I want us to start, we're going to be in Psalm 23, but I want us to start in Revelation. Revelation chapter 7, verses 15 through 17. I just want you to read this with me, and then let our, let our minds go there, and, and, and just ask that the Lord would set our hearts on the future that will be. So we recognize when we take the Lord's Supper together, we're not looking primarily just backwards at a sacrifice, but we're looking at the reality of a future that is possible, that is able, and that is a sure thing based upon that sacrifice. And so we get a, we get a window into that future here. Verse 15 says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And so the presence of God is, is covering over his people. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Listen to this, listen to this image. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, and he will be their shepherd. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. We're in Psalm 23. It, it, it's, it's the psalm that, that people cry out in the midst of tremendous difficulty because it figures God is this incredibly personal and intimate being. I mean, this is the same thing that Jesus says to us in John chapter 10. John, John 10 and verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. And how does he defend that? This, this thing that he says of himself, how does he defend his his testimony that he is the good shepherd. He says, this is what the good shepherd does. He lays down his life for the sheep. So he's giving us a window into what would be this tremendous sacrifice, even on behalf of all those who yelled, crucify him. So when we come into Psalm 23, it's not some distant notion. It's not this incredibly transcendent picture of God, although he is certainly that. But in Psalm 23, what we see is this incredibly intimate, imminent, personal, and close God. Would you read with me? We're going to take our first movement in verses 1 through 4, and then we'll come back and do verses 5 through 6. So let's read 1 through 4 together. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David. David knew what it was to be incredibly broken before God, to have no other recourse except to call out to God and entreat him for forgiveness and restoration. And what we see in this psalm here attributed to him is an incredibly, see, for instance, it's not a mature, it's not a well-postured or well-written, it is a broken, empty, humble cry before God. This is our cry. He says, the Lord 
So we read that and, and, and we remember in the New Testament that Jesus is frequent, frequently spoken of as Lord. But when we come here and in Psalm 23 he says the Lord, we have to stop and we have to unpack that and begin to think what is he trying to communicate about who God is. You see God spoke these own words of himself or this own name of himself in Exodus 34. Exodus 34 he's communing with Moses. In verse 6 it says the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity upon the fathers, of the fathers on the children, and to the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. When he gets in there and he says, the Lord, it's this incredibly majestic picture of this creator God who spoke in everything came into existence. But it's this picture of this incredibly intimate and all-powerful God who upholds the very breath that you and I are breathing in right now. He's sustaining us. He's keeping our hearts uh, pumping. He's allowing our bodies to breathe in oxygen and, and, and to process it. He is keeping some of us awake. He is keeping other, others of us dutiful in this struggle. He is our Lord. And look what he goes on to say. He doesn't say he is our shepherd. And that's, that's really what we would expect. We would expect David as king to offer up this description of the collective, of this, of this big group. Or if I said God is the king of, of the people of Ridgecrest, you'd say amen. But what he brings us is an unexpected personal application. He personalizes it. He says the Lord is my shepherd. Everybody repeat with me. Say the Lord is my shepherd. It's a tremendous statement that he offers us there. It's this, this bonding between God who is incredibly powerful, omnipotent. He knows all things. He's omniscient. And he is so near and dear to the, to the one praying, to the one pleading. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, contained behind the word shepherd, it's not this, this word, this, 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 this noun that he gives. Instead, he's describing an action. He's describing an action. Really, it's this, this participle, this, this word that says he is shepherding. And so he writes, he says, the Lord is shepherding me. It's just this tremendous application when we begin to look at it. And in three or four short words, you have, you have pronounced tremendous theological truth. God is close to you, he loves you, and he is superintending all the affairs of your life. It's just phenomenal theological truth. And we say, the Lord is my shepherd. And it escapes us the majestic, the majestic picture of God found herein. The majesty. The Lord is my shepherd. So we have tremendous access to an all-powerful God. What it says next, I shall not want. And our mind goes to all the things. We're like a kid at Christmas. Oh, man. You just don't know me. The things I want, the things I desire. I mean, that's kind of what we're saying inwardly. Outside, it's always pious. Yes, yes. Inwardly, it's the muah. I mean, that's just how we do it. But we miss it. We miss it. Our, our culture, our selfish desires bring into the text something it's not seeking to communicate. Is God able to bring you all the things you'd ever want and ever wrote on any Christmas list? Amen. Is he beyond glorious and amazing for not doing so? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not a discussion. It's not an indication that God brings us all the things that we're able to imagine or desire. But it's an indication. It's a testimony to God's sufficiency. It's an indication of God's absolute ability 
that the Christian is able to find rest and peace in him because he alone provides everything you could ever want. It's not all the things that you might think you'd want, the things that would make your house smell better, look better, or be more presentable to those around you. It's not ways that would make you look better, smell better, or be more presentable to those around you either. You see that the Lord is all that the Christian would ever want. He's all that a lost and hurting world could ever need. Look at the ways he describes himself here. What we see in 2 through 4 is he's primarily described in one of two ways. He is provider and he is protector. We see him described as provider. It says, he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. Sheep are not smart. Is this news to anyone? Sheep are not smart. And so it's, it's, it's little wonder that when given uh, a, a metaphor, an overarching descriptor to describe the people of God that he ascribes to us, sheep, we need a strong shepherd. You recognize that sheep, if given a possibility, would graze a pasture to nothing. I was reading a book this week uh, of a man who was a, he purchased some property in East Africa and he was going to raise sheep there. And he said when he first purchased the sheep and it came with a parcel of land he went in and they had destroyed it they had decimated this pasture because the guy who was shepherd over them the first time had just kind of let them graze and so he was kind of like me in high school my dad would say go let the horses out I didn't really care which pasture they went to I just I was fully processing out out what does out mean not in the barn dad they're out why'd you put them there well you just said out and so this, this guy had the same approach, and so he would just let them go out and be like, ah, when they get done eating, they'll go back in. Sheep won't do that. They won't do that. They'll go, and they'll eat the grass, and they'll eat all the way down to the bare roots, and they will destroy, they will decimate a pasture, and that's what they had done. But this description, look what it says. He makes me lie down in green pastures. God, as shepherd, is leading his people to the place they need to be at the time they need to be there. Green pastures. succulent. It, it, it is enough to sustain them. It is enough to be provision for them. And he is leading them to these places. Have you stopped to think that perhaps God is leading you in the midst of a difficult time? And he is leading you to a place that is no other way to be described other than green pastures. Some of us in the midst of tremendous difficulties look at the things God has us going through. And we say, I don't want any part of this. I don't want any part of the plan or the purpose that you have for me. Friends, would you recognize that God has tailor-made your sufferings to make you into the person he desires you to be? And your current location can be described as, it can be seen as green pastures. Why? Because God is this good shepherd, is leading you there. He leads me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Verse 3, he restores my soul. Moving from this description of the physical to the spiritual, he says he restores my soul. God recognizes that we are a broken and needy people. We are a hurting people. David, the story of his life is this beautiful story of of God's redemptive purposes moving in the midst of an incredibly broken, incredibly flawed, but an infinitely usable man. It's this beautiful picture of redemption. Messes up, he comes before God. God, would you forgive me God would you create in me a new heart God would you sustain me this promise herein verse 3 he restores my soul 
in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of disappointment, recognize that this God who is your shepherd has the ability, the power, the aptitude, the wherewithal, and the compassion to restore your soul. 2015 has been a rough year for many of us. Sickness, financial stress, fear, it's just kind of the landscape of those things that you observe. We've lost family members. It's been a hard year. But in the midst of that, we encounter this truth here. God is able to restore your soul. God is able to revive your life. He's able to infuse energy into you. He's able to unite you to him. He restores my soul. It's not this lofty hope or dream that David conjures, but he's actively describing something God is in the process of doing. He's restoring my soul. He's restoring my soul. This is such a great prayer for us. It's such a great thing for us to cry out. Look what he says next. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Now, another thing this, this uh, sheep farmer had to say about sheep was that they would, they would follow paths and they would wear down the soil. In fact, they would walk over the same course over and over and over again. And that as water ran along that, it would also ruin the land. It would ruin it. They would follow kind of this path of least resistance or going to go wherever they set their minds on going. But what the wise shepherd would do would lead them in a variety of paths according to caring for the land and caring for the sheep. What we see here is, is, is this spiritual application of this agricultural truth, these paths of righteousness. God is leading you in a straight path. God has plans. He has purposes for your life. And those are most adequately received, they're most appropriately applied in bringing glory to his name. God's plan for you in your life, his will for you, is your sanctification. And that in being sanctified, in being made holy, that your life might resound in glory to him. Do you understand that? That he has created you as an image bearer of the king so that you might reflect glory back to him. So that when people see you, and they see you following, they say, who do you follow in life? You say, I follow Jesus. He is leading, he is guiding, he is directing my path. I say, what does that look like? You say, it is the pursuit of righteousness. This isn't religious speak. This isn't religious speak. It's not religious speak to say that I'm pursuing righteousness. This should be our heartbeat. We've allowed our culture, for whatever reason, to make this a ridiculous thing that we might say, to make it an awkward moment. You're having a sandwich with someone at Schlossky's, and they say, How are you, how's your day? What are you doing? You say, my day's going pretty well. I'm pursuing righteousness. Friends, that's the end of most of our lunches. They say, okay, let me, let me grab the tab. I'll take care of this. But this is, this is part and partial of the Christian's life. He leads us in paths of righteousness, and it calls us to submit to him. Notice it doesn't say, we converse, we discuss, I lay out what I want to do, he tells me what he wants to do, and that's kind of where we start our conversation. No, it says, he leads me, he has us by the nose, he has us, he's guiding us around. It is not this this partial partnership whereby we're 50%, God is 50%, we enter into this conversation, God, this is what I would like to do, and he comes back to me, he slaps me around and says, that's stupid. Like, that's not how it happens either. We are fully submitting ourselves to the leading of God in our lives. You want peace in your life. There will be no peace in your life outside of letting God lead you. 
It's not passivity. It is you forcing yourself into submission and crying out to God, God, as you restore my soul, would you help me to submit myself, submit my hopes, submit my dreams, submit my life to following you. He leads us in paths of righteousness. For what purpose? Look here, it says, for his namesake. Do you remember in the gospel accounts when Jesus talks about the, the sheep that is lost and the shepherd goes out to find it? The shepherding's name in the community, his, his reputation, so to speak, is tied to his ability to be a good shepherd. So as he loses sheep, people aren't all that willing to entrust livestock to him. And so it would be as if, as if Charles and Tim were shepherds, and Tim was an extraordinary shepherd, and Charles, like his, his, his flock is just steadily depleting because he keeps losing them. Lost old floppy last week. What happened to him? He fell in the gorge. And, and, but Tim's flock is, is doing well, he's caring for them, they're healthy. Well, their reputation is tied to their ability to care for and provide for their flock. And old gorge loser over here, he just, we have, we have no desire to entrust anything to him because he keeps losing sheep in the gorge. God's namesake is the reason he's leading you in paths of righteousness. God desires for his glory to be reflected in your life. And enable for that to happen, you've got to be willing to let him lead you. He staked his name, he staked his reputation on being united with you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, him crucified, him resurrected, him ascended. And as people who bear the name Christian, Christ follower, or any other cool and hip way you want to articulate it, it is on you to reflect his glory. To allow him to lead you. God serves as provider. When we get into verse 4, we recognize that God also serves as protector. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He describes this, 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 this scene in our minds, which kind of instantly brings in this idea of, of darkness, of scariness. I've got two kids, neither one of them will go to the bathroom without an accompaniment because neither one of them wants to have to turn the light on. They walk in there, it's scary, scary. This is what I hear all day long. It's not scary, there's light all along the path. Yes, but in the valley of the shadow of death, there is no light. It's a bathroom, it's quite small. There's a window, I don't understand. There is, yeah, okay. Oh, goodness. It's value of the shadow of death, the difficulties of life. Some of us encounter physical difficulties. Some of us encounter really just this, this spiritual difficulty. And most of the spiritual difficulties we find in life are situated on some way that we presume God has disappointed us in the past or that we presume that we have disappointed God in the past and we're unwilling to deal with. So we find ourselves, this, this feeling of, of separation, this feeling of distance from God. But friend, what we read in here is that this God is your shepherd. He cares for you. He desires that you be close to him. And his intention is to steadily restore your soul. And so in the midst of these, these trying difficulties in life, in the midst of losing family members, in the midst of struggling spiritually, what we read here is, is not that we won't encounter difficulties, but that in the midst of these things we will fear no evil. Now this sounds insane. This sounds crazy. 
Are, are you telling me that, that even in the midst of difficulties, even in the midst of hard things, that I'll fear no, fear no evil? I'm not telling you that. That's what Psalm 23 says. It says, even in the midst of tremendous difficulty, you need not fear. You need not fear. Well, why? On the basis of what? Well, it's not your ability to overcome your irrational fear of the dark. I still have an irrational fear of the dark. I'm not proud about it, but now my kids have picked up on it. It's generational. But what he tells us here is that we need not fear in the midst of these things. Why? For you are with me. Now, what I want you to notice is there's been this subtle, subtle shift between verses 3 and verse 4. All through 1 through 3, it's he. He does this. But in verse 4, he personalizes it, personalizes it once more. You are with me. David wants us to understand that God is not far off, that he is not remote, and he is not removed. He is intimately involved in the affairs of your life. He is seeking to uphold you. He's seeking to be near to you. And the reason we don't have to fear is not because we've gone through some course on how to better manage our anxiety, how to better manage our fear. The reason we need not despair in the midst of these difficult times is because God is present with you. He journeys with you. He journeys alongside you, and he goes before you. Don't fear no evil. Look what he says here in the last part of verse 4. Your, ra- your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Christian, with his eye on the rod and the staff of a holy God, is able to take comfort. Now, the shepherd had these two instruments, and sometimes they would combine the two into one, but they would have a rod. They would have, basically, it's a club, and they would take different bits of metal or, or hardened rock, and they would put it into the end of this club about yay long, and when something came to do damage to the sheep, and so if Justin is a wolf, and he's coming to do damage, and I won't use the guitar, that's expensive, he's coming to do damage with the sheep, and imagine I have a club in my hand, and he's this, this, this awful, rabid bear, I just start swinging and just start beating. This is my job, is to protect these sheep, and I've got here this club. And so the shepherd would go out and he would carry this club, this hardened uh, piece of wood, and it's got metal and all this on top of it, and its use, its purpose was protection for the sheep. We recognize that sometimes even sheep catch themselves in the middle of doing something that's not wise. This farmer was talking about his sheep when he'd find them out and they were about to eat something poisonous. He could take this rod and with pinpoint accuracy throw it and hit them and knock them away from what they were about to eat. Occasionally the rod of God comes into our lives. It's not out of God's desire to bring some type of punitive retribution in our lives that he is small-minded or that he is in some way wanting to be miserly, but his care... His provision, and to boil it down, God's love for you occasionally means that he invites his discipline, his rod to be brought into your life. Not believing that. Not understanding that and and, and not praising God for that doesn't make it go away. What it does is make you in the midst of difficulties Think them to be irrational and senseless. Occasionally, God brings the rod to bear in your life. But it is for your provision. It is for your protection. It is for your own good. And it comes from a place because he loves you. 
desperately. I said also that we see the staff occasionally in the midst of our ignorance following this course of sheep, we find ourselves, for no fault of Charles's, we find ourselves in that gorge. And the shepherd's job is to take this staff, this, this uh, stick that has a big hook on the end of it, and to loop it around the sheep and to pull them back from the midst of the gorge from the midst of the rushing waves. And in this, we see the kindness and compassion of God who knows perfectly well what each situation in our life calls for. Just as there are times in our life when God brings his rod to bear in our lives, so too there are times in our life when he gently and lovingly hooks his staff around us and pulls us back from danger, pulls us back from accident, pulls us back from discomfort. God, God functioned in both of these ways in the person of Jesus. Jesus in John chapter 10 said that I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd is the one that lays down his life for his sheep. And we recognize that Jesus did exactly that. In taking the Lord's Supper, in taking the Lord's Supper we recognize and we worship the God who came in flesh, who took our sin and who canceled the penalty that led to death. And allowing his own creation to put him to death and then being raised again on the third day. As we prepare to pass out the first of the two elements, let's think through and pray through all the ways God has been provider and protector for us. Reading from Matthew chapter 26. Jesus says, or the word says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Verse 5 in Psalm 23 sees a shift in metaphor. It sees a, a shift in identity. Jesus... Um, has spoken of himself as being the good shepherd, but what we see here, and we kind of get that, what we see here in verse 5 is that this metaphor of, of shepherd has shifted to the idea of host. The idea of host. Verse 5 and 6, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. It's this, this image of, of shepherd kind of takes a, a, a side, and the idea of God as host comes full course it comes to the very front of our understanding and look where he describes this here you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies i don't have many enemies at least that i know about those of you who presume yourselves to be my enemies we need to talk i'm not aware of you uh, readily anyway but david writing this understood what it was to be surrounded by enemies be it uh, King Saul that he found himself uh, being on the wrong side of, or is he surrounded by his own family members? He's surrounded by those who would seek to overthrow the nation of Israel. David was intimately aware with the idea of enemy. Now, you and I, we, we find ourselves being more comfortable being surrounded by our own struggles, the difficult things going on in our lives. And, and so this, for us, is enemy. And some of us, 
It is our former way of existence, like we talked last week. It is the sinful things that we did before we came to know Jesus, how they continue to clamor for first place in our lives. Those idols that we formerly put away when we came to faith, those things clamor for our attention. They clamor to be first in our lives. And how does he describe it? He says, you lay a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You know, one of the obligations of a host is to provide for the protection of the honored guest. And so if, if in this culture you were to be invited into someone's home, it was on them to extend protection to you. So we see this when the angels go to visit Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah and the people of the town want to do damage to the angels. And what does Lot do? He bars the door. He is seeking to protect that which had been entrusted to him. As a host, he is seeking to provide protection for the ones under his roof. For those of you who are saved, you have cried out to God for forgiveness. He has moved to bring new life in you. He has called you, the Bible would say, from darkness to light, from deadness to life. He is your host. And you have a host that is able to protect you from all enemies that you might ever encounter. And his protection is so incredibly powerful that he's able to lay a spread for you. He's able to do all these things even while you're surrounded by these enemies. And so they look in, they peer in, and they see you supping with God. They see this harvest, this bounty that is brought and is laid out before them. Even as you're surrounded by your enemies, your host extends protection to you by virtue of who he is and his ability to do so. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Look what he goes on. He says, you anoint my head with oil. When you come in to a first century home, if you're the honored guest, they would take an olive oil, season with perfume, and they would pour it over you. It would give a pleasant smell, and it would also signify the blessing of the host coming to rest on you. This is what God does to you when you come to know him. His blessing rests on you. His anointing rests on you. This host, as you're dining with him, surrounded by your enemies, in complete and utter security, he anoints your head with oil. And look how he describes it. David says, my cup overflows. This isn't the six-year-old cup overflowing that so many of us are so familiar with cleaning up over and over again. This is a description of complete and utter joy. This cup overflows. Your host is so joyous with you coming that when he is filling your cup, he fills it over and over and over again as a display of his delight in being with you, of having you there with him. This is the love of the host come to bear on the anointed guest, on the, on the welcomed one. This is what your Lord does for you. This is how we are able to say, even in the midst of tremendous difficulty, that my cup overflows. Why? It's not because of our ability to be better at things in life or to somehow think that our, our passing difficulties are trivial or not worth our concern. The reason we're able to give testimony to the fact that our cup overflows is because God's goodness is always able to be pouring into our lives. Would that we would avail ourselves to it. That you would recognize God's goodness always on display for you, always available to you. Look what David would have us remember in verse 6. 
to surely, certainly, but of course, goodness and mercy, this loving faithfulness of God shall follow me all the days of my life. David understands that he's going to be surrounded by enemies. Notice that the Psalms just doesn't go next and say, and all my enemies are laid low. They're all wiped out. Like we're sitting there eating, and all of a sudden, boom, and they're all gone. I'm like, would you pass the baklava? That's not what's happening. Even in the midst of being surrounded by these enemies, even in the midst of this tremendous difficulty, he is anointed, his cup overflows, and goodness and mercy will follow him even in spite of his surroundings. The circumstances and all these difficulties of life do not hinder God unable. They don't render God unable. They don't hinder him from bringing the blessings to bear in the life of the Christian. So he's able to say firmly, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David didn't look at his relationship with God as some tenuous thing that could come and go. It's incredibly important for us to be aware of that. Looked at his life, he recognized his frailty, he recognized his, his givenness that he was prone to, as ours would say, he's prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. This is kind of where he found himself. But in the midst of this, he did not doubt at the base, his relationship with God. Didn't doubt it. The same thing John writes about in 1 John 5, 13. He says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? So that you might know that you have eternal life. Our repeated return to doubting God's love being visited upon us is a poor reflection of our understanding of who he is. God's love to us is not dependent upon us being lovable. Praise God. Everybody say, God's love for me is not dependent upon me being lovable. You kind of trailed off at the end there. But it's not. It's not dependent upon us being lovable. His love towards us is contingent upon his character. And God's character towards us is bent towards loving us in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's on the basis of our relationship with Jesus Christ that we're able to see God's goodness and mercy come to us. It's not our ability to to be at peace with all those around us. It's not our ability to bring some political process to bear and to elect the person that we want. Our having goodness and mercy present And giving testimony in our lives is solely dependent upon our relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Friends, what we see is that for God's goodness and mercy to be fully visited upon us in our lives, he sent his son to suffer and to die for us. I want you to understand that. In sending his son to suffer and to die for us, it wasn't just that God said, look, these people are are, are in just a big heap of mess, Jesus. I need you to go take care of it. He sent all of our sin, all of our punishment, all of the things that we have done wrong and will do wrong, and he laid the punishment of those things on Jesus. This is referred to as propitiation. The wrath of God was visited on the person of Jesus. It's not that God saw all of our things and said, it's okay, they just can't get it right. I'll just excuse those things. No, because God is good and just. His righteousness must be satisfied. And so he poured out wrath. And he poured it upon the Son. 
And for all of us, all those of us who have come to know Jesus, to receive the forgiveness of God in the person of Jesus, God's wrath does not come upon us. That's what we recognize in the Lord's Supper. Jesus who allowed his body to be broken. Jesus who allowed himself to be pierced. Jesus who allowed himself to bleed. His blood covers our our transgressions. Jesus' blood covers our transgressions. And it's because of that, God's goodness, God's mercy will follow us. And we will reside with him forever. Reading again from Matthew 26. It says, And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. The Lord's Supper is calling us to reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus, but it's also calling us to respond. So as we now have an opportunity for us to move in response, that in whatever way God is calling you to respond on the basis of the sacrifice of the Son on your behalf, now as we sing together, we have an opportunity to do so. So let me ask that you would stand as we reflect and respond upon God's goodness to us in the sacrifice of the Son.